You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Well, thank you for that, Elvin, and uh, truly uh, a fitting tribute to our God. Uh, Chuck, in his community meditation, started with uh, God is good, and we know how to respond to that. And God is good. Not only that, God is great. And uh, appreciate that music from Elvin here this morning. Please turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, where we'll begin today. It was a case of not exactly the response we had hoped for. In 1992, the Pepsi company had a much smaller market share in the Philippines than did their rival, the Coca-Cola company. In an effort to boost sales, Pepsi launched a promotional campaign in the Philippines called Numbers Fever. On the inside of bottle caps of Pepsi products were monetary amounts and three-digit numbers. Each day during the promotion, a three-digit number was selected and announced as a winner. If your bottle cap had that number, you would receive the monetary amount shown. Was anybody in the Philippines in 1992? Anybody here? Okay. No, so nobody knows that. Okay. Uh, so anyway, uh, if your bottle... Uh, okay. So Pepsi's advertising boasted, today you could be a millionaire because the top prize was 1 million Filipino pesos worth about $40,000 in 1992. All in all, Pepsi budgeted around $2 million in total prize payouts. Well, sounds pretty normal, right? Well, on May 25th, 1992, the Pepsi company announced that the winning number was 349. 349. Up to that point, there had been more than 1500 or 51,000, excuse me, 51,000 people who had won cash prizes. 17 people had claimed the million peso prize. But the vast majority won the minimum prize that was 1,000 pesos. If you're doing the math, you realize that's only about $40. Of course, for them, you know, some of those people that earn $4 a day, that'd be like 10 days wages, so that was pretty good for them. Giveaways such as this one are controlled by the company in selecting only the numbers which will result in a total payout equal to or less than the amount budgeted as prize money by the company. They print up the bottle caps. They know how many of each number there are, and so they select the numbers accordingly, randomly, but accordingly, right? Okay. But on May 25th, someone at Pepsi made a huge mistake by selecting 349 as the winning number because there were more than 800,000 bottle caps printed with the number 349 in them. That would have been over $32 million in payout, more than 16 times Pepsi's total prize budget, even if the, all prizes were just the minimum $40 prize. Someone at Pepsi did the math, and they initially refused to pay out any of the people who had 349 under their bottle cap there. As you can imagine, that didn't end well. Pepsi, record, uh, excuse me, Pepsi records show that at least 32 delivery trucks had been stoned, torched, or overturned. Armed men had thrown homemade bombs at Pepsi plants and offices. And in the worst incident, and this is terrible and it's sad, police say a fragmentation grenade tossed at a parked Pepsi truck in a Manila suburb bounced off and killed a school teacher and a five-year-old girl and wounded six other people. 
In the end, Pepsi paid almost 500,000 people about $18 apiece to settle the claims, totaling around $10 million. Okay? Now, why am I telling you all this? The, the perennial question, right? Why am I telling you all this? Because Pepsi's goal, the goal here, let's not lose sight of that, the goal was to increase sales and boost profits in the Philippines. You might not know that the Philippines is the world's 12th largest carbonated soft drink market. At, you know, Philippines, they drink a lot of soda there apparently. In the end though, the company lost millions and engendered a lot of ill will. It really was not the response they were looking for. And that was their fault. Okay? And, and that's, there's going to be a parallel today, but that, not that part of it. Okay? Don't, don't focus on the, the part where it was Pepsi's fault and that there was violence. Um, but I see a similarity here. In John chapter 6, Jesus performs an amazing miracle. Right? The feeding of the 5,000. And we've heard about this. If you've been in church at all, you've heard about the feeding of the 5,000 probably. The goal was, though, to open the eyes of the people to who Jesus really is. So they would believe in him as the Messiah and Savior of the world. Instead, the way I see it, the people responded in at least four different ways other than the one Jesus desired. So thinking about that. And, you know, the, the thing about the Pepsi company, I, I think it's an interesting story, but it also illustrates how you have a goal and you set out to try to achieve that goal, but sometimes things don't turn out that way. And I think this is one of those cases. And uh, as we look at it, you'll see that, in my opinion, the feeding the 5,000 is just the beginning. That's not the end of the story. Uh, it's tempting just to look at that and go, wow, isn't Jesus great? And he is, and it's a good story for that, but there's more. So let's start in John chapter 6, verse 1. And uh, read the first 14 verses. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him. Um, Oops, I didn't separate that right, did I? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, that's to Jesus, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, in number about 5,000. Then Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten." Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now, as we study the Gospel of John, we need to remind ourselves occasionally of John twenty-one twenty-five, which says, And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. We do not have 
every miracle of Jesus recorded. Not even if we take all the four Gospels together. We don't have every miracle recorded. And some of these many other things that Jesus did, I think, are what drew this large crowd to Jesus on this particular day. If we take John at his word that Jesus did so many things that if you wrote him down, yes, I know he's exaggerating, if you wrote him down, the world wouldn't be able to contain the books, then Jesus was constantly performing signs and wonders and miracles among the people, and a lot of these had to do with healing. So this large crowd was following him on account of those things, and it was a large crowd. Verse 10 tells us there were 5,000 men. Perhaps the crowd is even mostly made up of men, but we know there was at least one boy among them, don't we? Estimates on total crowd size run from seven or 8,000, clear up to fifteen or 20,000. Either way, that's a lot of people. Okay? I don't like, I'm not a big group person. I'm not a big city person. I don't like the crowds. Um, this would have been a lot of people that day. And note that verse 4 mentions that Passover was near. Uh, this means two things. First of all, it was sometime in the spring that this was happening, and this is the second Passover mentioned specifically in John. So we are somewhere more than a year and less than two years into Jesus' ministry at this point. But Jesus asked a question, didn't he? And we don't know if Jesus singled Philip out for some reason, or if he was just the disciple that was handy. You know, hey, Philip, you know, he's right there. Philip, Jesus asked Philip how they expect to feed all these people. Now, ladies, this is far far worse than that time your husband brought home those five people without telling you. You know, He brought them home for supper and didn't let you know. Okay, this is way worse than that. Philip said that eight months wages wouldn't buy enough food for everyone to have even just a little. That's a lot of food. Take eight months wages and, and devote it all to food. Verse 6 says Jesus was testing Philip. And I see something like that and I think, testing in what way? And I think Jesus was testing Philip to see whether he understood enough about Jesus to turn to him and say, there's no way that we disciples can feed all those people. Only you can do that, Jesus. And Philip isn't quite there yet. Okay? Yeah, I think we can excuse him for that. I don't think we're going to take Philip too much to task here. Andrew wasn't quite there yet either, but Andrew's got the right idea. He hears this conversation. He starts looking around. And he says, here's a boy. And he's got a lunch. Now, this lunch, it says five loaves. You know, we think of a loaf of bread like a loaf of bread. These are probably more like dinner rolls, okay? Little personal loaves. These are his lunch. And he's got five, what I think are small rolls of bread, and a couple of pieces of cooked fish. Small pieces, the word uh, indicates here. But at least Andrew's looking around for a way to do what he thinks Jesus wants him to do. I like that about Andrew. We don't know how we're going to do it. Um, we we'll start, we'll start trying, at least, you know, and, and he's going to give it a go. But he doesn't understand the miracle that Jesus has in mind. And he doesn't realize that Jesus knows exactly what he's about to do here. And so Jesus does. He feeds the crowd. 5,000 men, plus the women and children present, however many there were total, they ate all they wanted, and there were 12 baskets of food left over. Now, a lot has been made here of, of the leftovers, the number of the baskets here and the feeding of the 4,000, how many baskets were left over there. I think it's more significant. All those people had all they wanted. Did you catch that? This isn't about uh, some sort of minimalistic uh, miracle where everybody gets a bite. Even that would have been a, a tremendous miracle. But this is 
a miracle of abundance, even a miracle of excess. And I think that's what makes it stand out. This wasn't lunch. This was a feast. You know, last week we, we spent a lot of time discussing the fact that Jesus is God. Well, when God provides, there will be enough to go around, and then some. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 puts it this way. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And he's talking about material resources and how we use them for, on behalf of other people. The disciples certainly had a lot to think about as they were collecting those 12 baskets of leftover food. How long it took them to go among these 5,000 men, plus however many women and children were there, I don't know. It would have taken a while. But they had a lot to think about as they were collecting those 12 baskets. And that's where I got the title for today's message, Food for Thought. Because the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 isn't about making sure that people have food. Nothing wrong with making sure that people have food, but that's not the point here. It was to get people to think, and specifically to think about who Jesus is and what that means. You come to, you come to grips with the fact of who Jesus is, and then you explore the idea, what does that mean to me? You're there, if you're honest with yourself. You're there. And so food for thought, I think, is what the miracle of feeding the 5,000 was really all about. And then we have a little interlude here, verses 15 through 21. It says, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I said in the introduction here that the people responded here in at least four different ways that were not the ways that Jesus desired for them to respond. And in verse 15, we find the first of those wrong responses. These people intended to come and seize Jesus and forcibly make him their king. And here's what I think was going on in their heads. They thought that with his power, they could overthrow the Romans, they could restore Israel to the glory that it experienced under David and Solomon. This is a popular conception at that time of who the Messiah would be. But it was wrong, of course. What was even more wrong was the underlying meaning of this attempt, uh, attempted action. Think about what that means. These people were going to impose their will on Jesus. They were going to dictate terms to him. In terms of a biblical analogy given in both Isaiah and Romans, the clay was going to tell the potter what to do. Okay, that, That's what's happening here. And it's easy to look at these people and go, man, they sure got that wrong. But I think we have to take care, and I think we have to pay attention to this wrong response, because it is one that we are liable to make in our own lives. 
There is no question that Jesus has power. If you come to that point, if you're a believer in Jesus, you understand that. You know that Jesus has power. And there's no question that the power of Jesus can be applied to our lives. But the question is, who decides when? And who decides how that power will be applied? Because if it's me, I got a number, I got a list of stuff I want Jesus to do. And I want him to do it right now. But that's not my place, is it? And it's not your place either. The answer about who decides when and who decides how that power will be be applied, the answer is Jesus. Too many times, I'm one of them. I'm one of those people that gets there. We think the answer is us. Uh, In this interlude here, we do find the disciples being afraid. It's dark. The wind is up. In Mark chapter 6, describing this incident, uh, he, he says that the disciples were straining at the oars. Okay, The wind is against them here. It's about five miles across the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. And I don't know how long it would ordinarily take them to do that. Have you ever rowed five miles in a regular rowboat? That's a long way. And these people, uh, this would have been a bigger boat, a heavier boat, probably not moved through the water quite as easily. And, you know, their oars aren't quite as technologically advanced as ours. I don't know. Maybe that's not the case. But it's going to be tough going is what I'm saying. It's taking longer that night than it would ordinarily take them. Mark also tells us it was about the fourth watch of the night, time when you're not ordinarily even awake. This is between 3 and 6 a.m., And that's when Jesus appeared to them walking on the water. Again, according to Mark, the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost and they were terrified. It's not been a good night for them. They've been out there working hard. They're they're not uh, making a lot of progress, you know, and, and now Jesus shows up and they don't know what to make of that. So they're terrified of that. But he says, it is I, don't be afraid. So they let him in the boat. Now you get to verse 21. And verse 21 contains a word that we might pass over if we're not careful. I I do this. Sometimes, I I don't know how many times I've read this, and it has not always stood out to me. The word in verse 21, at least in my translation, is immediately. It says, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, how did that happen? How did they just all of a sudden get there? This is another miracle of Jesus. He transported the boat. You can say teleported if you want to. He transported the boat from where they were when he got in immediately to the place where they were going. It's not like, well, we're almost there, Jesus. Okay, get in the boat. Oh, well, we're here. No, it's not like that. They're still out in the middle, and Jesus gets in the boat, and now they're not. They're this where they were headed. All right? Jesus freely exercised his power in front of his disciples in many ways, more than we have recorded even. Okay, so then we come to the next part here in verse 22. The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? I've chosen to stop there for a second because the last section is kind of long and all together. And I wanted to make a little bit of a break here. But think about what's going on here. These crowds saw Jesus the day before. And they were there experienced the miracle of feeding the 5,000, perhaps even themselves, ate the bread, ate the fish. And so the next day, they're right back there. 
And they had seen the day before. There's only one boat down there. And they saw the disciples get in the boat. And they know Jesus didn't get in the boat. So they're expecting to find Jesus right back where they left him. And they're definitely looking for Jesus. And that reason, you know, the reason why they're looking for him will be clear in a moment. Even if you, if you figured that out already, you probably have. But um, they finally figure out he's not going to be found there. So they start looking around. And on the shore of Galilee, Capernaum is a logical place to look. It's a place where Jesus has been seen before, where the disciples have been seen. And so uh, they go to Capernaum, and that's where they find Jesus. And we, we find something that happens here. Along with some wrong responses to what Jesus was trying to accomplish here in this passage, the people also ask the wrong question. Instead of asking Jesus when he arrived, where they were, they should have asked him where he was going and whether they could follow him as his disciples. Now, they call him rabbi, which means teacher. It would be the kind of uh, address you would give to someone who had disciples and, and uh, perhaps who you wanted to be his disciple. But it seems that they still think that Jesus should conform to their expectations in his comings and going. We left you over there. How'd you, why are you here? When did you get over here? Because we wanted to you know, talk to you back over there because you know, we kind of liked lunch yesterday. That was good. You know? And that's what they're really after. Okay? That's what they're really after. And Jesus knows that. He points that out here. Go to verse 26. Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, You seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Verses 26 through 29, we get to the second wrong response here. And Jesus points it out like this He said to them, You seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And these people needed a savior, but what they were looking for that day was a meal ticket. Okay? And then verses 30 to 33 have the third wrong response. The people were hearing Jesus' words, but they weren't listening to what he meant. They heard him say, You didn't seek me because you saw signs, so they responded with, Okay, perform another sign. In fact, here's an idea. Why don't you give us bread from heaven like the Israelites had during their journey to the promised land? 
Why don't we do that? You can see where their minds are still, right? Now, this is actually two wrong responses rolled into one. And I wasn't really going to address the first one. The first one is that they quoted Scripture. It is written, right? They quoted Scripture, twisting it for their own purposes. There are various Old Testament passages from Nehemiah and Psalms implied in Exodus that refer to the manna that God gave the Israelites as bread from heaven. The people were absolutely right that the Scripture said this. But they were trying to use those passages to manipulate Jesus into giving them more food. Not a good idea, right? The other wrong response, the one I want us to pay attention to here, is that they were asking for more signs when signs had already been given. Jesus had turned water into wine at Cana of Galilee. He'd been traveling around in both Judea and Galilee, healing people. Who knows how many people? We have only a few recorded so far. And he fed a multitude of people. These people, with just a couple small fish and a few loaves of bread. These people should have been on their faces, exclaiming, My Lord and my God. And instead, they practically demanded that Jesus feed them again in order to prove himself to them. Their wrong response was not believing the signs Jesus had already performed. And the people thought that they were going to determine what it took to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And I have to stop there and ask the question, are we ever like that? I'm speaking mostly to the non-Christians who are here today. Do you ever find yourself thinking, well, if Jesus will do this for me, then I'll believe in him. And what does he have to do for you before you'll believe? I mean, is it, is it healing you want? Is it a change in your situation somehow? Financial security, maybe a job, some kind of relationship? Certainly Jesus could provide all of those things for you and more. But are you really going to hold your faith hostage until Jesus lives up to your expectations? Maybe instead you should investigate what he has already done and ask yourself, are those things sufficient for me to believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord? And then, putting your faith in him, trust him to work in your life the way he thinks is best. Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus makes that, as you talk about grammar in English, that have a complement, okay? Uh, this is a predicate nominative, if you really want to know. I am is a, is a, am is a being verb, and then uh, on the other side of that, I is the subject. On the other side of that, we have the bread of life. This is a predicate nominative that renames the subject, right? This is the first of seven of those. And then there's another time when Jesus just says, I am. These I am statements are, are some things that, again, identify Jesus as God. That's what the message was all about last week. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that this week. But just take note of that when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then we get to verse 34 through the end of this passage that we read here today. And we have the fourth wrong response. At Jacob's well in Samaria, back in John chapter 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he could give her living water so that she would never thirst again. You might remember that. The woman didn't understand what he was talking about. But she asked him for that living water so she wouldn't have to come to the well anymore. And possibly because of the shame and scorn she suffered from others because of her own history and past. In today's passage, John six thirty four. The people misunderstood what Jesus was saying the same way the woman at the well 
misunderstood. They were thinking that Jesus had some kind of special bread, maybe some kind of new and improved manna, right, that would benefit them physically. Wow, never have to be hungry again. That'd be handy. I like that. Or maybe bread that just stays good forever and it just regenerates itself. You come back into the pantry every day and there's more bread. And that would be great too. Mostly, I think, they were starting to understand that Jesus wasn't going to grab some other boy's lunch and feed the crowd with it again. They heard him talking about the bread from heaven that gives life. So they were hoping that Jesus was going to feed them again with that bread. And they've got it wrong because Jesus is talking about spiritual things and they're still, still thinking on the physical level. Still thinking with their stomachs, right? And that's the fourth wrong response here. They're, they're down here still while Jesus is up here. All right. Now, the feeding of the 5,000 is an account that gets a lot of attention. And that's good. But there was a larger purpose here to this miracle. It's great that everyone had all that they wanted to eat. But the goal here was to get people asking the right questions. To get people to see Jesus for who he really is. And in the account in John chapter 6... At least many of these people didn't ask the right questions. And they failed to see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, and as Lord. Now in our passage today, we saw people respond to Jesus in four different ways that weren't the right response. And these are important for us to remember because we may well respond to Jesus in those same ways. And we have to guard against this. All right. The first one is, I'm I'm in charge, not Jesus. That's a wrong response. These people were going to take Jesus by force and make him their earthly king. It doesn't say they were going to consult him about that. They didn't, weren't going to ask him whether that was the right thing to do. They weren't going to submit himself to his authority and his plan. They thought that they were in charge and not Jesus. And you may find yourself telling Jesus how things are going to be. You may think you are going to decide in what ways and to what extent Jesus is going to change you. You may think that you have the final say as to how you're going to live your life. And if that coincides with what Jesus wants, great. If not, well, too bad, Jesus, because I'm in charge here. Doesn't that sound crazy? I hope none of us would ever actually say those words, but I hope even more that none of us would ever really act that way. If Jesus is Lord of your life, there's no question who's really in charge. It's Jesus. You don't even have to think about it. It's Jesus every time. Well, the second wrong response here was that they thought Jesus is the way for me to get what I want. There's a lot of that going around. Jesus fed the multitude, and they liked that. So they came back to Jesus to get more of what they wanted. And to those people, Jesus looked less like a Savior and more like a meal ticket. And there are people today who want to follow Jesus for the same reason. They think that somehow being a follower of Jesus will get them everything that they want. I got to tell you, being a disciple of Jesus means embracing a life of suffering, a life of sacrifice, a life of commitment, and a life of selflessness, not selfishness. In 1 Timothy 6 5, Paul talks about those who believe that godliness is a means of financial or personal gain. In other words, that following Jesus is the way to get for yourself what you want. Here's the truth. Following Jesus is the way to get for yourself what he wants. 
Think about that and realize how important that is. The third wrong response here is, I decide what it takes to prove that Jesus is the Savior. Have you ever heard someone say, I'm not a Christian because I prayed for, and then named some specific request, and I didn't get it. You ever heard that? I've heard that. I'm not a Christian because I prayed for this and it didn't happen. You and I know that God doesn't give us everything that we ask for in prayer. There's a lot of reasons why he doesn't. But the question I have is, are we going to make that the determining factor for whether we follow Jesus or not? The people in our passage today demanded another sign that would persuade them once and for all that Jesus is the Messiah. And these are the same people who had all they wanted to eat when the only food available was a few rolls and a couple fish. Really? They needed a more impressive sign than that? I mean, how many times before it takes? It should have been enough for them, and it ought to be enough for us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior. And the fourth wrong response here is that idea that my perception of my needs is always right. Now see, and this is where we get a little confused. If you ask almost anyone to make a list of what a person has to have in order to exist, right, you know that food's going to be on that list. We, we talk about this. What, what do you need for survival? Well, you need, food, it's always first, food, clothing, shelter, don't forget air and water while you're at it. But anyway, you need those things, right? When our concern is what it takes to sustain physical life, it's entirely appropriate that food be on that list. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer that Chuck gave us here again this morning at the communion time, Jesus taught his disciples to pray and to ask God for their daily bread. That's physical sustenance right there. But our daily bread isn't our greatest need. When Jesus had fasted in the wilderness for 40 days and nights, he was tempted by Satan to prove his power as the Son of God by turning stones into bread. Well, let me ask you, could Jesus do that? Could Jesus turn stones into bread? Sure he could. Did Jesus do that? No, he did not. His reply to Satan underscores the point that we need to see here. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Physical food sustains us for the duration of our physical lives. Great, but then what? See? You've got to have the right perspective. If you have the short-sighted perspective of this life is all there is, and I, all I have to worry about is getting by day to day, then physical food is going to be a pretty important thing for you. But if you have the bigger picture in mind, the eternal perspective, well, then you know that there's things that are more important than physical food. Without the bread from heaven, which is said here in this passage, means to accept and obey the word of God by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. Without that, we will not be able to sustain our spiritual lives, and instead we will face eternal spiritual death. You know, sometimes we get so wrapped up in what we think we need, we fail to see what our true needs really are. By the way, what's a, a, another way of saying what we think we need? What's another way of saying that? It's what we want. Yeah, yeah it's what I want. Pretty good at figuring that out, aren't we? Instead, we need to see what our true needs really are. And God never gets confused about what we really need. So we need to listen to him and seek the things that he tells us are the most important now, it may seem like I skipped over the last verses of the section that we read 
here. And I was saving a couple of those for the invitation time. If you're not a Christian this morning, especially, I, I really want you to hear again the statements of Jesus that he made in verses 35 and 40. In verse 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's not talking about physical hunger and thirst, is he? True satisfaction and fulfillment come only from having Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. You have a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst that demand to be satisfied. And only Jesus can satisfy them completely and continually. And the second statement comes from verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. If you're not in Christ this morning, I want you to know it is God's will that those who see Jesus for who he really is, and who believe in him as Lord and Savior, accepting him on his terms, will experience a resurrection leading to eternal life that is provided by Jesus himself when he returns. Jesus doesn't say it right here, but tied in with that, the salvation and the forgiveness of sin and the eternal life he offers can't be gotten anywhere else. There's no alternative source here. Only Jesus can and will provide these things for you. And so the question is simple. Will you accept what Jesus has to offer? 